Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be doing part two of our response to Trilablog. And our first part focused pretty much on his uh, laughable attempt to claim that divine simplicity was a, just a Thomistic notion rather than default classical Christianity, uh, strongly in the Calvinist tradition as well, that all Calvinists uh, who know anything about metaphysics, they agree with. And him not agreeing with it, puts him in the open theist camp. And so that's funny. Calvinists tend to not understand metaphysics. They tend to not understand their own theology. You'll find that some of them do. They, some of them, uh, and it, you'll, you'll find out pretty quickly when you're debating with them if, if they understand their metaphysics or not. They'll, they'll make certain admissions that they're the normal Calvinists would never admit to because the normal Calvinist doesn't know their own theology. But he kind of avoids some of my point. Uh, he's, he kind of addressed other parts of the point. My point was that all these attributes that the Calvinists ascribe to God, such as immutability and timelessness, these, these other proof texts that they turn to, here's what they do. They say, hey, I need a proof text for sovereignty. So I'm going to turn to Genesis 50, where God's doing something to get Joseph in a certain position. But God doing things, that violates their metaphysics. And so Calvinists have to compartmentalize their proof texts. Their, their, their proof texts just do not work with their overall systematic theology. And so their proof text is a single use only and not to be bounced off against other things they believe because it would totally destroy their system if their proof text was read in light of their metaphysics. God doing things violates their metaphysics. God doing things means he's not eternally simple, timeless, immutable, unchangeable, ineffable. It gives God predicates and relationships. Uh, the, the, the whole Bible contradicts their metaphysics on the face value, reading their own proof text that they're trying to use as proof text for other issues. Uh, so their, their system internally doesn't make sense and it falls apart. And in this article, in his response to me, he tries to make that accusation against open theists, which I think is a reading comprehension problem. I turn to reading comprehension. How do we understand phrases? How do we understand the variety of meaning of, of language, which is inherently flexible and loose? And what I'll try to do is uh, I'll try to turn to similar phrases about man or similar phrases about other gods and other literature. And those phrases just do not carry the metaphysical constructs that these Calvinists would like to import onto the text. And a lot of times, just the context of their verse, their proof text, will disprove what they're trying to prove. But anyways, back to my original point. In God, when God is described in the Bible, the things that are ascribed to him negate Calvinism. You don't have to take my word for it. Let's turn to Bavink, which is a Calvinistic systematic theologian, who tells us there's no such thing as foreknowledge for God. Consequently, strictly speaking, one cannot speak of foreknowledge in the case of God. With him, there are no distinctions of time. 
He calls the things that are not as if they were, and sees what is not as if it had already existed. For what is foreknowledge if not knowledge of the future events? But can anything be future to God who surpasses all times? For if God's knowledge includes these very things themselves, they are not future to him but present. And for this reason we should no longer speak of God's foreknowledge, but simply God's knowledge. With God in Calvinism, there's no predestination, there's no foreknowledge, there's there's no sovereignty. God's not controlling. All things are eternally programmed from a, a divinely simple act from all eternity. None of these descriptions of God are accurate in the Bible. And our friend here at Trilobog, and he, he kind of sees this and kind of understands it. He, he basically admits it in the article that the entire Bible is written contrary to his theology. Let's go to my next point that he responds to. I'll read my quote first. Does Genesis talk with this Reformed theology in mind, or does it talk like this Reformed theology is not even a consideration in the minds of the writers? Is God pure actuality or active and dynamic? Is God incomprehensibly transcendent, or does God interact with people? Let the verses speak for themselves. I'm appealing to the text in my quote. He doesn't like it. Here's how he responds. To begin with, there is such thing as progressive revelation. So this is what they do. They say the Bible writers are kind of ignorant about things, and they, they didn't really understand the true picture. So all their descriptions of God are inaccurate and not true. This, this, not all Calvinists are these progressive revelation individuals, but the ones who tend to be a little bit more honest, a little bit more uh, reading comprehension friendly to the Bible, they understand that the Bible contradicts their theology. And so they need a mechanism by which they can dismiss large swaths of it. He writes this, In addition, inspiration doesn't make the Bible writers omniscient. There are a lot of things they don't know, but ignorance does not contradict truth. Remember, his truth is apart from the biblical writers. He reads his theology into the text rather than gets it from the text. Let's read his number three. This also goes to the difference between open theist hermeneutics and classical theist hermeneutics. If you take everything scripture says about God at face value, you end up with contradictory representations of God. So, yeah, I would like to see some verses that he makes this claim about. Surely there are some contradictory claims about God in the Bible, but but typically um, you're not going to find any classical negative theology in the Bible whatsoever. Zero of the writers held those beliefs about God. Zero of them wrote about it. Zero of them uh, believed it. And maybe, maybe people in the New Testament might have had some inkling about these Neoplatonic concepts, but for the most part, they were not even a theological option. Just this negative theology that God's immutable, timeless, eternally simple, and God's uh, pure actuality, they're not concepts. They're not in the Bible. And so for him to say that the open theists have to, uh, have to read our, our uh, hermeneutics over those proof texts that prove those things, I don't think those proof texts exist. And I think it just comes down to reading comprehension. Calvinists cannot read. They're illiterate. And, you know, I've been kicked out of Calvinistic groups for claiming it, uh, but I post proof. I, I show them proof that they can't read. I give them similar phrases in other literature and ask them to read it and interpret it. And they never do. They don't want to play that game. They don't want to play read a text and tell us what the text means because it'll make them look stupid. <laughs> It will. It will. 
and they just don't want to admit that there's other options for their proof text that might even be more reasonable, more reading comprehension friendly. He writes this, which passages should we take literally? It's much easier to understand how the God of classical theism adapts to human understanding than to understand why scripture would often depict the God of open theism as if he was the God of classical theism. Yeah, you could say the same thing about Homer too. So I don't know why you need the Bible. You have your theology. Uh, you don't need the Bible. You could use the Iliad if you want. That could be your Bible. If you just want to read your own stuff into it, uh, be my guess. But I don't think, I don't think uh, open theists have to depart from normal reading comprehension techniques for any of your proof texts. I don't think it's outside the realm of how normal readers would read those texts. Open theists don't even have to appeal to the same mitigation mechanisms for dismissing the text that the Calvinists do. The Calvinists will say, oh, it's progressive revelation. We could just ignore that and import our theology. Or they'll say something like, oh, that's an anthropomorphism. So it's idiomatic. We could just ignore it. Well, that's that. That's not a real idiom. There, there's there's no idiom where you just describe something like a person and then it's uh, that means nothing. There's no meaning to it. There's an idiom called personification, but that has to have some sort of correlation to reality. It, it illustrations, idiomatic speech, help clarify rather than obfuscate. And so their claim of this this uh, idiom that just describes something not as it is. Uh, that doesn't help us in any way, doesn't correlate to reality, that, that's not a real idiom. In the time of Augustine, when they talked about the anthropomorphs, these are people who literally believed God had a literal body. That's how they used the word. And the, and the word really didn't take on any idiomatic type of uh, meaning until the 16th century, in which it started to be used a, as a way just to dismiss whatever you call is an anthropomorphism. Oh, that's an anthropomorphism. We don't have to care about that. Throw that in the garbage. We don't need that part of the Bible. And so I reject that. I think we need to stick with normal reading comprehension standards. I think we need to read the text, read the context, let context clarify short, vague phrases, and not import our theology on the text. We need to be good biblical scholars. And I've been reading a lot of biblical scholars lately, people who are not Christian, and zero of them think that the Bible authors believed in Calvinism. That no, no one believes it because it's not even there. It's, it's not an option. Calvinists, I say it again and again, they're cultists. They live in this bubble world where there's, there's no real rules of reading comprehension. There's no, no real rules of hermeneutics. They, they just, their cult mentality, their, their cult doctrines take precedence and priority. And everything's interpreted in that light. And they cannot even put themselves in the shoes of other people to see positions which are not their own. That's why their memes are so bad, because they, they mischaracterize. They, they, they're so far outside the reality that their memes are laughable because they have no connection to the real world. Here's my quote again that he's quoting. The text of both Genesis and the quote depict God in a vastly different manner than Reformed theology. God sends. God takes precautions. God actively positions people in preferred places as opposed to eternal decrees in which free actors are not a concern. God repurposes other people's plans. None of these are actions of an immutable, simple, pure actuality God, not affected by creation or wholly transcendent. This is his reply. That reflects a very simplistic or uninformed grasp of Reformed theology. Does it? Does it? I think I know Reformed theology better than you, as we've already demonstrated. 
I know your arguments. Your arguments are bad arguments. Let's see how he responds. Take someone who designs a video game. He exists outside the game, yet he's responsible for every detail, character, plot, setting, dialogue. Indirectly, he's totally involved in everything that happens. Let's just take his analogy. God is a video game designer. I, I'm a coder. I write code. I, I could do that. Uh, and so I could build a video game that plays out itself. I could have an eternal decree that starts a video game and then plays it to fruition. But guess what? As those things are going on, none of those things that are happening in that game can be really considered my interaction with that game. My involvement in that was that initial setting up of every scenario. And so my character, I could, I guess I could build a little avatar for myself that, to work in there and say, oh, that's me. It looks like me or something like that. But it's really not me. And it's not me doing those things. And it's not accurate to say I'm interacting and doing those things in the video game. I'm just the initial designer that forced all events. There's no real interaction that happens in this pre-programmed, predestined, immutable game that just that plays out per a fatalistic code. There's no interaction. And so the, my point still stands. And your computer designer illustration just illustrates my point further. I'd like to also point out that argument by illustration is not a good argument, especially when the illustration furthers my argument even further. It's my illustration. Your, your God is the computer programmer who designs the whole program, hits play, and then it plays out without his interaction. And in fact, he's immutable and timeless. And so there's no place for interaction. So nothing that happens could really truly be said to be God's interaction with the world. The Bible is not written with this in mind. It's so alien and foreign to the Bible that these people, they're, they're grasping at straws. Their analogies don't even hold. <laughs> they don't. So here's what he says. At the same time, there's a distinction between the action of the gamer and action within the world of the game. The characters act on each other as well as the environment. So is it a designer or is it a gamer? I guess it's a designer plus gamer, but that's not their perception of God. God's, remember, immutable, timeless. He has one eternal, simple decree. He's the guy who hits play. He's not one interacting. I could program a video game that uh, I could play against the AI. That's, that's not their understanding of how God operates operates. It's in one eternal, simple act. The illustration of a gamer interacting with a video game that he designs, that's an open theistic illustration. That's how open theists view God. God designed the world. He designed the settings. He, he populated it with in, individuals, NPCs, NPCs that he himself cannot predict. And that's, that's one of the facets of the Bible, that God's creation is even unpredictable to the one who created him. That's part of God's reason for creation. It is a love relationship with other beings that he's that are not under meticulous control. These are other free will, uh, thinking, rational, uh, independent, and relational beings which with whom God can commune. That's a very big theme of the Bible. In fact, the plot of the Bible is God reaching out to man to try to establish this relationship. It, it's not a Calvinistic plot. The Bible is not Calvinistic. You have to read that into the text. You have to force it into the text. Here's my next quote. Likewise, the associated quote by Matthews is not a Calvinistic concept. God specifically acting in one instance to assure success is antithetical to Calvinism, which believes all things, no matter how minute, are the eternal decree of God. Here's his response. 
That's a fallacy. Showing God acting in one particular instance doesn't imply that God only acted in that one instance. It, that would only be a fallacy if I was using a logical syllogism. If I'm building some sort of argument, this equals this. No, when, when normal authors, when they write, uh, they, they write about the exceptions. So when, when you're reading a play about actors interacting, they don't talk about people having to breathe. You know, the, the breathing would be something that wouldn't be expected if it's described in a play. Maybe a dead person is coming back to life. Then their breathing would be described. But you typically don't highlight things that are true universally throughout the, the play or throughout the story. That's just not how literature works. And so it's not a fallacy. It's, it's it, My argument's not, not a logical syllogism. It's this is how people communicate. We communicate the details are, are exceptional. The details are not mundane. That happen no matter what, all the time, without any exceptions. And so, yeah, describing God doing something suggests that God doesn't do everything, just by the nature of how humans communicate. I write this. Trilobog might not understand the logical fallacy of composition, assuming something true of a part can be extrapolated to the whole. Yes, a car window is made out of glass, but this doesn't suggest that the entire car is made out of glass. Pointing out a car window is just made out of glass even suggests that the entire car is not made out of glass or else it would be easier just to explain the entire car is glass. Yeah, if God's just doing everything, that you don't have to point out the little details. You could just say, oh, God does everything, so God's doing this, but you don't really see that. And he writes this, sorry, but that's just obtuse. The post presents a cumulative case for Calvinism, citing a battery of proof texts and exegesis. Yeah, but guess what? All your little examples, God doing things. If I had a big example list of me doing things in the past, that doesn't mean that now I'm this God of Calvinism. We got a huge repertoire of me making accurate 100% predictions on this program throughout the lifetime of God is Open podcast. My predictions have always come true 100%. And so I guess we could quote every single one of those and say I'm omniscient of all future events. But that's not how reality works. Quoting a bunch of things God does and then pretending God does everything, that's a fallacy. You don't have your proof text. You don't have your go-to uh, this is my theological treatise on God's sovereignty written in the Bible. It's just not there. And so you have to do this shoddy proof texting where you just pull out examples of things God does do, which invalidates your point. It validates your point because that's not how people write, not how people operate. That's not how people think by accumulating all these little things and just saying, oh, God does everything. It's funny, there's these psalms and they're written by King David and King David is a man after God's own heart who God communicated with directly. And people read these psalms as if those psalms are written for themselves. It, it, it's just absolutely nuts. Uh, God's special relationship with David would suggest a special relationship that's, that's, that's unique and, and not applicable to everyone. You can't just read in the Bible these little things and just try to make everything a universal. That is indeed the actual fallacy. Moreover, the Bible also has passages about God's universal predestination and meticulous providence. Individual examples serve to illustrate that general principle. Yeah, we'd have to turn to those proof texts of yours. Again, I've shown in other contexts where kings make people do things. And, and uh, the, the Enuma Elish, these, these grand titles about Marduk, 
doing all things, predestining everything, uh, making the fate happen. They're, they're, they're not to be taken yeah, and as a hard and fast rules, uh, typically when this language is used. The narrative takes precedence. And when in the narrative of the Bible, you have God being thwarted, God's expectations failing. And this is not general rule of course, right? Because God is powerful. God is knowledgeable. God's typically not thwarted. And so open theists, what we have to do, like a rational person, is we turn to the exceptions in the Bible where God is thwarted or where God does uh, come across something he didn't expect. And we'll turn to those exceptions and we say, yeah, look, look at what's going on here. These are narratives in which God doesn't expect something. God God didn't accurately predict something. Uh, things turn out differently and God has to change his plans. And these things are in the Bible. And they do not conflict. They do not conflict with these general principle verses because general principle verses are typically more like rules of thumb. They're, they don't operate in a hard and fast way that our trailer blog guy would like to have it. And we know this, we know this because, because if our friend, if he were to turn to any other literature other than the Bible, he would intuitively understand this and intuitively read other similar works in the fashion that open theists read the Bible. When he comes to the Bible, he comes with a unique set of uh, reading comprehension techniques. He comes to the Bible with eisegesis. He wants to dismiss the, the proof text he doesn't like. And he doesn't want to consider how normal, rational people, normal, rational, even grab a scholar. Grab a scholar and see what they say about Yahweh in the Bible. They don't take these general principle proof texts to override the narrative. In fact, the general principle proof texts are typically derived from the various narratives. And it's an almagation of the narratives, and they do have exceptions. Uh, you know, sometimes people do argue against God and win. Even though Paul might say, uh, who is anyone to argue against God? People do argue against God and win. The general rule is uh, proved by the exception. So back to my article. This is a quote that from me. Yes, God might work a specific purpose in one instance, but that doesn't mean God works every instance, no matter how remote, for some secretive purpose. God working to save Joseph from his brothers to make him powerful does not mean God gives children cancer for some sort of goal in mind. That is a terrible stretch of logic. The context does not even assume God controlled the intentions of Joseph's brothers, much less most of the actions in the story that worked counter to God's plans. The point is that God over overcame obstacles and used them to his advantage, an interesting action for a supposedly immutable, impassable God. This is what he writes. The Joseph cycle begins with the protagonist receiving two prophetic dreams. This implies that the future was already set. Does it? Does it? Uh, or, or alternatively, uh, people could regularly have dreams about the future, future events that will occur. And sometimes these events are thwarted or they're changed or they're mitigated in some sense. Let's use Joseph, for example, since we're on the topic of Joseph. In his first dream, one of his dreams, he's got the sun and the moon and stars bowing to him. There's there's what? There's his brothers bowing. His, his dad is the sun and his mom is the moon. But the thing is, his mom died before she ever bowed to him. And so it didn't actually come true. His dream had details that did not materialize. And so a lot of times these dreams will tell us about the future. I, I don't disagree that people have dreams about things which will come to pass or dreams about the future. But it, it's never like this one-to-one -one correlation that it happens exactly 
as in the dream. And often in the Bible, knowledge of the future is meant to change current actions in order to subvert, subvert the, the current situation and subvert our knowledge of the future. That's typically how the Bible treats the future, as mutable. And what he likes to do, he's a Calvinist, and he just, I, I, he, I don't think he's given it real thought. He's He doesn't understand that, uh, you know, we can have dreams about the future, but that doesn't mean that the future will materialize as our dreams occur. He just thinks, in his mind, this is what uh, the, the other Calvinist did, that uh, Roy guy. He wrote a whole book about all the future prophecies in the Bible, but he forgot, the, the main thing he forgot was to show when they came true. Is, is the big one he starts with is uh, 400 years in Egypt, in slavery. When did that come true? When did that come true? The timing was off. It wasn't 400 years of oppression. It wasn't 400 years of slavery. It's more like 80, the lifetime of Moses. When Moses is a kid, they start to get oppressed, and then uh, he bails them out 80 years later when he's an older man. They're about 80 years of slavery, not 400, and not 400 years of oppression. And the book of Exodus talks about 430 years in Egypt. And so the time frame, the time frame was off. And so they're, they're quoting things predicted about the future and they, they stop at stage one, the prediction about the future, but they don't show that it actually came true at exactly how it's said it's going to come true. And that would point to open theism when these things don't materialize in detail per the details, how they said that they were going to happen. That would be an open theistic take that you could say things about the future and the future can materialize more or less on those lines and sometimes be subverted altogether. Like when Jonah said Nineveh is going to be overthrown in 40 days, that just did not happen. And it didn't happen because God looked and he saw that the people repented and God repented of what he said he would do to them. That's the text. So the future subverted. So this guy, Trila Blog, just quoting the fact that, that there's people having dreams about the future, he, he's missing some steps there. He's missing some steps of logic to jump from that to Calvinism, that to the future being set. That doesn't mean the future set. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? You're missing steps. You, you, you haven't seriously thought about the issues. You seriously haven't thought about counterexamples throughout the Bible in which future things are said that they're going to happen and they do not happen. That would apply the future is not set, even though we can say things about the future. Again, I have 100% prediction accuracy on this program. I've made money. I've doubled my money in less than uh, six months on the website Predict It, in which you predict the future. For money, I doubled my money. And so it, it's, it's a little ludicrous to me that he's quoting this as proof positive of a set future. He says, the reader knows in advance how the story will end. In a sense, everything that happens in between is working back from that fate accompli, like running a motion picture in reverse. I um, Maybe, but uh, I think that the people normally reading Genesis will start from the beginning and then go towards the end. You might have read it differently because you're coming from a Western Christian perspective in which you know the end. But that's not necessarily typically uh, stories you have to read in sequence. And the Genesis 50 is, is recounting those events. And there, there's some pretty detailed interaction between 
God and Joseph throughout the story, showing God's providence and God micromanaging events to get Joseph in certain situations, which is ludicrous in Calvinism. Why doesn't God just do it? Why does God have to use all these weird methods of, uh, you know, how Joseph needs to get captured and he needs to be put in this? Why doesn't he just do it? Why doesn't he just crown him uh, Pharaoh or whatever? And just say, you now rule all of Egypt and you have no opposition because that's my decree. Why does he have to interact in such weird ways to get people where he wants? It doesn't make sense. Just, just everything God has to go through to get Joseph into this position doesn't make sense in Calvinism. That's not, that's not the Octum's razor, the most simple way to get God's plan accomplished. He writes, God had no obstacles to overcome. Joseph had obstacles to overcome. I think he's confusing his emotions with reality. And so he thinks he could just say something and it makes it true. The actions of his brothers don't work counter to God's plan any more than the actions of a storybook villain work counter to the intentions of the storyteller. Again, he's just emoting. Uh, he doesn't ha he, he thinks that just saying something makes it true. It doesn't. So here's his last point. What's the open theist justification for children with cancer? Are we on the same topic still? Are you just talking about nothing? You're pulling stuff out of your butt. This is your time to emote because you don't think on a rational level. You think on an emotional level. So you think that me having or not having a justification with kids for cancer will change the reality of the situation of what the God of the Bible, who he is, what the authors thought about the God of the Bible, None of that will change based on if I have a justification for kids with cancer or not. But guess what? My kid did have cancer. What's my justification for children with cancer? I don't have to justify it. It's a fact of reality. Part of this world, this fallen world we live in, is people get cancer. Sometimes people die randomly. People are struck by a boulder that rolls off a cliff randomly. There's no rational agent behind that. It's just a facet of this world. And this is a facet that not only open theists uh, struggle with, uh, rational people, normal people, uh, but throughout the Bible, you find all sorts of texts. Uh, the Psalms, they cry out to God. They, they, they call God out. They, they say, God, you're shirking your duty. The righteous are suffering all day long, and you're, you're not acting. You, you haven't uh, came and established righteousness, and, and you're letting the wicked prosper. God, you are shirking your duty. So they had to wrestle with very legitimate concerns as well, and they blamed God. They, they put the, the blame on God. God's not doing what God should do, which is not an option for Calvinism because, again, uh, their systematic rules what, what, what they believe. They don't let the text dictate. They don't want to believe in the God as the ancient Israelite authors of the Bible as they saw God. They saw God who could. God could shirk his duty. God could not act. God had to be sometimes called to account. God had to be petitioned for action sometimes. But again, Calvinism is just not in the Bible systematically. And when he thinks he's uh, calling open theists to account, he's calling the biblical authors to account because the biblical authors had to struggle with the exact same problems that open theists struggle with. 
And uh, that's because they were open theists. The biblical authors were open theists. So his argument is an argument against Christianity. His emotional appeal is an emotional appeal against biblical theism. Again, trial blog, Christianity is not for you. The Bible's not for you. You don't like the Bible. You don't like the perspectives of the biblical authors, which are shared by open theists. And you know what? Uh, go find a different religion, one that will give you your butterflies in your stomach because it'll explain all the evil things. Oh, cancer has some good positive benefit. Yay, cancer's good. <laughs> this this is the psychotic mess that he lives in. It's it's cultish, and uh, I, the, these people are not rational. And, and it's really telling that his last paragraph in this long thing is is some nonsense about cancer, emoting, about justification for open theists and, and kids with cancer. What kind of low stability nonsense is that? We're not dealing with rational people. Uh, Trailer Blog's not a rational person. He, he, he seems to understand a little bit that the Bible just doesn't have any of his presuppositions throughout the Bible. And he just has to force it into the text. And he has to go through all these, these uh, mental mitigation strategies to justify to himself why his Calvinism is really in the Bible. It's just not. I just, just not. Give it up. What I really need to do one of these days is find a Calvinist willing to sit down with me and just talk about reading comprehension. How do we read? How do we understand phrases? And go over something like the Numa Elish where they don't have a theological dog in the fight. And we'll go over these negative theology phrases that they would normally take if applied to Yahweh. They'd take them as, oh, this is Calvinism. And just read them normally, like a normal human being reading a normal text. These phrases about Marduk predestining all things and, and Marduk controlling the fate. These phrases and see how they operate and function in the overall context. And it'll be readily apparent that these any forced metaphysics into those phrases are, are just, it's, it's not the natural way to read how those phrases are functioning and operating. And what they'll show also is that in the Bible, when Calvinists do those proof texting, when they think that their metaphysics are implied by their short little phrases, uh, I, the Lord, do not change. And in the context of God changing, in the context of God writing a book so that the people can be assured he doesn't punish the wrong people when he returns, that's the context of I, the Lord, do not change. But they ignore the context. They grab the little phrase, half a sentence, and then they assume their theology. Because they're not biblical scholars, they're, they're not being scholarly when they're approaching the Bible. They really want their system to be true. They really want to live in this world where the Bible actually advocates this, these platonic notions about who God is. Christianity is just not the religion for you. And especially with this last paragraph, your emotions, your emotions rule what you believe. Christianity is not the place for someone who's emotionally based like that, where your emotions is going to dictate reality. You need a different religion. There, there's Platonism. You could take Platonism. That seems more your thing. Not the God of the Bible, not Yahweh. Yahweh's a little bit more dangerous than that. Yahweh's a little bit more unpredictable than that. Yahweh's a little bit more dynamic. You can't control him. You can't control Yahweh in the Bible. He's his own person. But anyways, this has probably gone long enough. A like, leave a comment, start a thread on God is Open site. Uh, thank you for listening.